Hello, my name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 8 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew McLean. He is a zoologist and the CEO of Equitation Science International. Andrew started his career in the horse world as a competitive event rider, and he wanted to become a better trainer. That led him to ask questions about the horse's mental abilities and the difference between horses and humans. This again led him into the fields of equine cognition and learning, and a PhD. And when he started to look at the bond between horse and rider, that led him down the path to attachment theory. And after he had followed that path for a while, the one field that summed it all up for him was horse welfare, or animal welfare, to be precise. The short version is that he thinks we can and ought to do better. The slightly longer version is this interview that has been divided into two parts. This is part one. So, Andrew McLean, it's a great honor to have you as a guest in my studio to talk about equine cognition and learning. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And for people who do not know you, you have a PhD in neuroscience, isn't that right? That's right. Well, not actually in neuroscience, but actually in um, an allied area in animal cognition. Um, you know, the mental uh, capabilities and aspects of the of the brain of animals, in particular horses. That, But it's fairly varied. Um, sorry, it's fairly uh, standard across mammals, the brain. There are only a few differences, really. Could we, could we start to talk about those differences? Sure. Yeah, well, see, I think that's the thing that really interested me in the very beginning of my journey as a competitive rider and a coach is, you know, how do we come to the horse and how do we train the horse with the, uh, in a fair kind of way? And that logically leads you to the conversation about, well, what are the things we share with horses? And there are lots of them. But what are the things that make us different? And they're going to be the things that, you know, will be a problem because we won't understand the differences. And the differences are really simple. It's just that what has made humans uh, so human and, and different in our evolution was the fact that we needed to be able to think out uh, solutions to fairly complex problems because we weren't the fastest, we weren't the strongest, um, but we had to be the smartest in some respects to be able to find a um, solution and therefore think ahead, plan ahead, use our memory in a what we call recall memory way where we can visualize the future and uh, in some ways, um, what well, we call it prospective memory to have um, the, a memory of uh, what actually has happened in the past in terms of events and being able to transpose that into the future. So it, it's basically like an imagination. You know, we can, in our global workspace, in the, in the brain where we think about things, we can lay it all out and make uh, fairly reasonable assumptions about, um, you know, like the if-then hypotheses. You know, if we do this, then this is likely to happen. If there is smoke coming out of our car bonnet, um, it's likely to be this, but not that. And that we've really uh, accentuated that. But the horse is really the opposite to that. It has a very good recognition memory. That is, it can 
remember um, a whole lot of stimuli. It's got an amazing, the horse, like many other animals, elephants in particular I'm thinking of, have this incredible memory. So for example, if somebody hits a horse with a whip, then it's likely that when the horse sees the whip the next time it will be fearful. But if it can't see the whip, it's unlikely to be, to, it, it, it's unlikely to be able to recall that that's what happened, except of course, if it's a person uh, that they know that did that, then that can trigger the memory. So there's a contextual aspect to it as well. But basically the horse, when he's just, you know, looking out of his stable, he can't be thinking that was a very bad experience I had two days ago. Whereas, you know, that's what we do. And in a way that's what makes things really tough for us mentally and why we have so many mental issues as humans, because, you know, we overthink things and we, you know, that's, that's the path we keep going down that gives us all sorts of problems, you know, psychoses and whatever. So that's the main difference. So the horse, you know, gra grass doesn't hide. You don't need to plan to catch it. And so these elements of the brain we call higher mental abilities that exist in the very front part of the brain called the, well, it's called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, but it's basically the very top and front of the brain is pretty much uniquely human in its extent. And the horse has no cells that are um, exactly like ours. Our, our cells there are very dense and granular and the horse doesn't have that. But the, ho the horse has this incredible memory that we don't have. So, you know, we, we would be hard pressed to remember exactly the scenery of yesterday or the day before, but the horse is brilliant at noticing that the bucket was moved beside the, outside the stable door or that there's a line in the sand or the snow where it wasn't there yesterday and the horse is very clever at that and you see the more you have human abilities the worse you are at that because every time we think of something as a human being and we reflect on it which the horse can't do but every time we reflect we corrupt the original memory you know we overlay it within with, by taking it out and thinking about it in the context in which we are in and then putting the memory back and it's quite corrupted. Horses don't corrupt their memories. They just, they just update them all the time. The size of the amygdala in the horse's brain is said to be a lot larger than with our other domestic animals. It is larger than other domestic animals. It's probably a, a similar kind of amygdala to maybe an antelope or any other animal that lives in the open grassland. You see, I think that's, I, I always find that amazing because I haven't ridden camels very often, but when I have, camel trainers tell me, you are crazy riding horses. They're the maddest creatures because they are in general quite flighty compared to a camel or a donkey. Um, and not all breeds are, of course. We've tried to dilute that uh, over time as we've used the horse, but then again, for purposes of racing and now sport competition in dressage even, we've actually put back into their genetic makeup more flighty genes because they're more expressive and they they run faster and all those things, but it's not always been a safe thing to do. But nonetheless, the horse is a very reactive animal that evolved in the open grassland where its predators could see it 
all the time. You know, they pretty much knew where the prey was. And that's a nerve wracking place to live. You know, when you're always in the vision of your predators, whereas creatures of the forest can hide quite easily. So to live in the open grassland, you need an extremely good flight response, excellent vision with a visual focus that instead of being a small circle like ours, where we just focus on one thing and everything else is peripheral, the horse has a visual strip that goes right across the horizon and everything is seen equally. There's no, there's actually no focusing in the horse, although people say the horse focuses, he doesn't. They tend to focus more their ears. And if there's something of interest, they'll turn their head and give both eyes and both ears. The horse has this very uh, horizon-based uh, focus that's all along the horizon and so you know they, they're just so geared to live in that open grassland and flight response even in the quieter breeds is still in there somewhere you know if they see even the quietest horse if it sees something that is really uh, a shock it can you know be really surprised and of course because they don't reason in the, that high mental ability way that I just described that's why the horse, if it's never seen a pony, it won't extrapolate and say, well, obviously that's just like me, only a smaller version. The horse just goes, I'm out of here, I'm leaving. And even their close relative, the donkey horses, you know, really find that quite alarming. Any, any kind of difference, because we take for granted as human beings, how we see the world and how we actually develop in our mind's eye uh, forms of of things in the world so you know we could say that that's a very large dog and that's a very small one same species or uh, probably more poignantly we could say that's a chair because it, it is a chair but we could also say that a um you know a, a park bench is a chair you know we have all these ranges of forms and even small children can do that quite well but for horses, it's much more important to have a very explicit hard drive and everything that doesn't quite fit in, be very suspicious of it. Do we say that the horses are unable to generalize? Uh, no, they can generalize. No, they, they're quite good at generalizing, but it takes them uh, some time. You know, it's really important that they remain context specific. My, my approach is very much a, as a zoologist, is it from an evolutionary point of view, because you know, horses evolved the brain and the abilities that they needed to live on that open grassland. So they do generalize eventually. So for example, if you train a horse to go into a horse trailer, the second time he sees it, or the second trailer he sees, he's likely to not go in it, or he's likely to be hesitating, because it's not the same as the image that he has stored in his brain that he went in easily. But the third one is easier and the fourth one is easier. So a way of thinking of this, how he stores all of these informations is rather like the old fashioned negatives of films where, you know, if you lay one negative on top of another and on top of another, eventually the common denominator is just that it's a horse trailer. And then he, then he generalizes and says, right, I go in any horse trailer now, but you know, they're very context specific and they don't just immediately generalize. Like if we got on one bus for us, it's just a bus and we would get on any other bus. Um, it's not, you know, so uh, diff difficult for us. 
but the horse is, you know, more suspicious of things and um, they have to be. So it's the same with water when you train a horse for cross country, you know, for military, you know, the three day eventing, when you train the horse for that, to go into water is quite difficult, but every water jump gets easier. And the general rule is that on average, it's about five. So when a horse has done five of anything, then they tend to give it the tick in the box. But that's within the same context. If the all other contexts um, are different, it might take a lot longer because everything matters to the horse. Um, when we train him to do something like, um, you know, pick up his leg from a voice command, just about anything we train the horse to do, we think we, he's learned to do it, but actually the horse tells us that actually he's only really learned to do it from this person in this place. And then that's why good horse trainers tend to train Piaf, for example, um, in the one place and keep everything the same until he learns it. And then you gradually move him away. If you keep training the same behavior in different places, it takes a lot longer for the horse to learn it. Um, there are many uh, opinions about equine cognition and I was wondering if you could talk me through the most common misunderstandings and then in particular those that are apt to reduce horse welfare. Yeah, I can do that. The, that's I, th I find that really interesting. I think the most common one, and that's why I mentioned the horses, um, the difference in their higher mental abilities compared to humans, you know, in other words, their lack of um, high level reasoning. And the big problem is that we then blame the horse for what he has done. You know, we say the horse knows what he did and therefore you can punish him. And there's a really high chance that he doesn't know what he's done. That um, He lives in this one moment in time and time just rolls on. And we have this recall memory that we can think back 10 seconds, one hour, one day, one month, one year, we can think back, but the horse can't do that. And well, he's highly likely not to be able to do that because as I said earlier, it's not been an advantage to him in his evolution to do it. And so it's really wrong to then base training practices on that kind of um, false belief that the horse knows what he did wrong or that he knows what he should do when you ask him to do something. I think there's a lot of assumptions that the horse almost inherently knows the answer to the AIDS um, and therefore, he, you know, he seems like a bad horse when he doesn't know. And I've heard that from trainers. Uh, and it really struck me with my work with elephants in Southeast Asia when a trainer, a, vet, a veterinarian said to me, I'm really surprised. Are you telling me the elephant has to learn these things? And I said, yes, of course. Why would you think it would be any different? And he said, well, in our, you know, religion, um, we believe that God Ganesh gave us the elephant to service and all we have to do is make him submissive and once he's made submissive he'll then do whatever you want and I said no no he has to learn it your job is to or the job of the mahout the elephant trainer is to try and teach the elephant and it's a much better way and we've shown that as well that it's so much quicker if you assume that and you take a lot of patience to train the elephant it's actually much 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 faster even though you're being very patient and setting things out step by step so there's no difference with horses you know we 
we shouldn't assume so much. So that's one big mistake. I think that's the biggest one. You know, we call it anthropomorphism when we assume that animals have our kind of understanding. Um, and there are quite a lot of other ones too where people misunderstand um, about the brain of the horse. Um, you know, they say, uh, well, for example, people say right-brained and left-brained horses as they do for humans. And th there is some truth to that. I have to say that's there's some truth, but they've got it the wrong way around. You know, when people say that um, if the horse is left brain, it's going to be, you know, dominant and um, brave and, and confident. Um, is that what, is that what you, you, they say in Norway? Do they say that about left brain? And, no, um, it's uh, it's an American some American trainers that have yeah. Uh, yeah, then, this theory. And a right-brained horse is submissive and fearful. Well, the, it's basically quite true, except the brain parts they've got the wrong way around, because you see the right eye leads to the left brain in all mammals, and the left eye loads the right brain with information. And what we do know. What, what science has shown is actually not just with horses, even dolphins and even in cattle. Uh, so across mammals is that animals prefer to see familiar animals and people that are familiar to them through their left eye. Um, and they uh, turn their right eye towards things that make them frightened and fearful, which I think explains a lot of the reason why in, throughout history, and not only in the West, but also in India, in the Middle East and in China, we've always approached horses from the left and we've always got on from the left side. It's not just a Western European thing. It's um, So it's got nothing to do with the sword like people think. This is in places where there were no swords. Uh, people got on horses always on the left side. And I think it's because the left is the less fearful side. So there's some truth to the difference, but I think they just got it around the wrong way. So it has nothing to do with me being right-handed and it's easier to get up from the left side either, you think? It's actually, it has to do with the eye and the way ho the horse sees the world, you think? I think it's more to do with that, but I think it's also a lucky uh, thing that we are mostly right-handed and we do get on. But I think that if we had the um, habit of getting on the other side, we'd very quickly learn to do it that way too. Um, but I think that's more fortunate for right-handed people that it goes like that. Uh, could you also talk me through the learning process of the horse, how the horse learns? Sure. I think that's a, a, a good time to talk about this right now because my earliest interest was in how the horse sees the world, how he understands the world and the differences that we've just mentioned. But that necessarily led me after my PhD into um, the area of learning and how do we do how do we, how do we train the horse because horse training is really just you know human beings hijacking learning processes in the horse that's really what we're doing and so the main ways they learn is uh, the main or the, the single main way is through operant conditioning and so that's all to do with reinforcement um, or largely to do with reinforcement um, occasionally punishment as well. Punishment comes into operant conditioning. But if we do our job well, we're, we're always going to be in the area of reinforcement, just reinforcing a behavior um, through reward or through pressure release. You know, we 
put the aid on and the horse gives the reaction and then we remove it. Um, and that's called negative reinforcement. It's not called negative reinforcement because it's bad. It's called negative reinforcement because it's about subtraction. It was mathematically coined. And so whatever we do when we use pressure on the horse, and that could be the leg, that could be the rein, that could be a tap with the stick, um, it could be a whole lot of different things, uh, lead rein pressure when we lead the horse, the critical thing is how we remove it. And the better we become at removing it exactly on time, as soon as the horse gives the correct response or the looking like it's giving the correct response and it's actually just begun to do it, we should remove it and release it and so or soften it. Um, and then very quickly, the horse learns to react to the very beginning of that pressure stimulus. And that's how he learns to, um, to move from light aids. That's really fundamental to all riding because what we do on horses, you know, we, we always use our reins and our legs or something to uh, on the horse's body for him to move. And um, the lighter the aid, the much better it is for the horse. So, um, and that's true for any animal. When we're leading a dog or any animal that has pressure, we've, we're really obliged to use the lightest version. And then at, in tandem with this negative reinforcement is the use of positive reinforcement where we can also train the horse to do so many things by using positive reinforcement, which often is in the form of food is commonly, and it's a very powerful motivator to use food, food treats, something that the horse really likes. The big problem with that in the beginning is that you may not always be able to get the timing right of delivery of food. And that's where secondary reinforcement comes in, you know, clicker training with a clicker, but you can do the same with a voice. We use voice with the elephants because um, often the, you know, we've got to keep coming back to these countries with more and more clickers because they get lost. But a voice command works just as well. But it, it's got to be a very clear voice command and a very unique one. That's what's good about the clicker. But anyway, the, so this secondary reinforcer, the clicker, clicks or makes a sound at exactly the right moment of the correct behavior. And it always means, it always means that food is following. And uh, we keep doing that uh, and it makes behaviors really, really fast. We can also use tactile reinforcement where we scratch the horse at the base of the withers. And we could say, good, when he gives the right response and scratch him at the base of the withers. In many circumstances, it's not as fast and efficient as food, but it's also uh, taps into something that food doesn't tap into and that's attachment theory. You know, because horses are creatures of touch and being evolved in the open grassland, touch is even more important for fearful animals that are wired in, you know, in, in flight response. And it really is valuable to horses. And so studies have shown that when humans scratch horses at the base of the withers, heart rate um, can lower uh, around 10 beats per minute when it's above you know, baseline heart rate, it will lower it by uh, that amount. And that's quite amazing that you know, it's so powerful. But many horses, the way we rear them, 
um, you know, where people wean horses too early um, and often they're segregated from other horses so they don't have enough socialization and company. It can really basically screw them up quite a bit socially and mentally and make them really insecure. And also some of them then don't really appreciate touch as much as the horse naturally would. So I think the way around that is to, for everyone to rub the horse with the withers and keep doing it and don't stop until the horse reciprocates with his lips. And then, and then it will, the time will reduce between when you first start doing it and his reaction. And now you've installed a very useful reinforcer. Um, so you can train anything, you know, when you say teach him to go forward or to stop or to turn or to do anything in any sport, you can say, good, and give him a scratch. Um, so that one and positive reinforcement are really useful adjuncts to amplify the use of pressure release in, in horse training. So the, this is really the main area of all training, no matter what we want to do with horses. It's the mixture of those two things. And when we mix them together, we call it combined reinforcement. It's very, very powerful. But you can, there are many behaviors you can train just with positive reinforcement too. Many, many behaviors um, uh, that, uh, you, that take a long time with negative reinforcement. I'm thinking, for example, when you train Piaf and Passage in dressage horses, um, it's really much faster if you use positive reinforcement. It's, it, positive reinforcement makes a, a bad place into a good place. So if the horse is nervous traveling, well, you can certainly train him to get on the horse float with negative reinforcement or the horse trailer, I should say, we don't. In Australia, we call them horse floats. Um, but we can certainly train the horse to get onto the trailer with, with pressure release, with tapping the stick but actually to make it a nice place, that's where positive reinforcement comes in. And the other side of the spectrum with punishment, for sure, if, if you are going to punish a horse, then timing seems to be uh, crucial. But what, what happens with the horse when you use punishment as a huge part of your training, as some people do? Yeah, it's a really big part. And, it, um, you know, we're very fortunate with horses, but they are, a, they, they are the, their own worst enemies because... They're so tolerant and we can do so many bad things to them without any kind of retribution. And I'm thinking of that again with elephants. If you do this to elephants, what we do to horses, you know, commonly, elephants will get very angry and they can, they kill a lot of people. That's not at all uncommon that elephants kill their own mahouts who've been with them if they've been subject to a lot of punishment and punishing type training practices. And what is common as it is with horse training, is that people punish animals for non-compliance. In other words, they ask the horse to do something and he didn't do it, so they smack him. Very common in jumping. If the horse refuses the jump, he gets turned away and they use the whip. And it's even, it's even allowed in some countries, which is quite shocking. And it's allowed under the FEI, you know, the International Federation. It's so wrong. Whereas what it doesn't help the horse at all to learn to jump by doing that. He doesn't know what he just did wrong. And it just makes him more and more frightened and flight into flight response. And so a horse that's more flighty, he probably will jump the jump, but he's not learning to. It's different. It's, he's running scared. 
it's much better to train into jump and to really want to jump. And um, I think they're such athletic animals. I, I, I'm quite sure that, especially the modern breeds of jumpers, we do know from research that jumping horses prefer to jump an obstacle in their path much more than dressage horses do. So punishment's a really, really big problem. And um, if we train well, we should really need to do it. And the only exceptions would be, for example, if the horse, you know, if you could be exactly on time because you've got to do the punishment when the horse is doing the behavior, even if, if there's a gap of anything more than half a second, it, it won't be recorded as changing that behavior. It's just too late. So I find that that is again about the horse's moment where you know he lives in this single moment in time and moves on. And they're not looking back like we do all the time. We, you know, we live in the past, but they live in the present very much. And we, it's funny because people spend money to become in the present. You know, people go to gurus and do meditation to live in the present and to get all this other stuff out of their head. But horses just live like that anyway. There's, they're a great example of how to live a life, I think. Um, and also when it comes to punishment, I think quite often... Um, one of the big problems is that it's quite often too much. You know, it's not exactly appropriate for what the horse just did because how do you gauge how, how strongly you punish? And it becomes part of the toolkit of humans then to use punishment for every different thing. And I remember Kira Kirkland um, said to me many years ago, um, that there's an old saying in Finnish, it may well be in Swedish actually, um, because she is a Swedish speaking Finn. Um, this saying goes, when you have a hammer in your hand, all your problems start looking like nails. And, and, and that's the problem with punishment is that, you know, once you go down that line, um, it's, it, it, it may never end. And so you've, I think that's why people need to learn more about learning and training um, and that's what, why I do what I do. And we run an online diploma course to teach people how to train horses um, in terms of biomechanics and neuro, neurology, ethology, all of those areas, because the more we learn, um, the better we'll be. And that's why I very much like your ethos that, you know, the more we know about horses, the better it is for them and the, and, and the better welfare it will be for sure. Can I ask you quickly also about punishment? Because for sure, most people will never have the timing for it to make any kind of sense for the horse. So what what does happen? Where where does this experience go in the brain and the you know the behavior of the horse? What what happens with it? It it, it really makes the horse lose a lot of confidence, and it actually starts to damage the bond between not only the horse and the and the um, handler. Um, but also horses and humans in general. And it has an, a, a secondary destabilizing effect too, where now the horse starts to show what we call negative affective states, where they begin to lose confidence in the world in terms of their own uh, controllability, you know, their ability to control their own life. And so we know that because we can do experiments with uh, well, we call them judgment bias tests. 
Um, and we know that uh, when horses are faced with, and other animals too, and humans, that when we're faced with confusing and punishing backgrounds, we tend to have really big problems in decision-making and, um, uh, and even uh, attempting to make a decision or attempting to do something. It's rather like, you know, with children nowadays, we, we, um, we don't punish children like it was done so much in the past because we recognise that if we can use better ways, then our children are going to stand up for justice you know, they will be brave to stand up for justice. And it's exactly the same thing with animals. If we train animals in a more caring kind of way, then the horse will try, try different behaviours. And so the damaging effect of this um, um, insecurity, mental insecurity, uh, tends to also head down towards chronic stress. And chronic stress shows up in so many different ways. Their cortisol levels are raised. They uh, tend to show aggressive behaviours and defensive behaviours. In other words, they're more likely to do bad things, um, you know, things that don't suit humans like bucking and rearing and shying and bolting. They're more insecure. Um, they're often more tense in their body. So they don't, they don't remain calm. Uh, it, it's just a range of problems that are damaging for their health. And so that's why I think I would never say you, sh you, you never punish a horse because, for example, if, it, if you could catch it during the act of biting or kicking or something dangerous, if you caught it in the act and it was just one moment and you could say, no, stop, that's it, um, that's, that's effective, but the timing is so important. But I think in general, the way it's used is a bad idea. Um, it's the same in, you, it's wonderful in Norway. You're, you're our sort of model for racing in Australia because um, we have it on our strategic plan in horse racing. I'm on the welfare board of Racing Victoria and so are a few other welfare scientists. It's on our, on our strategic plan to get rid of the whip. It's slowly happening. But our, our example is always Norway. You know, you still have horses that win races, but no one carries a whip. So um, it's it's just, again, an old traditional thing that people feel without it, they're lost. And I think that's such a, that speaks a lot about the cultural history of horse training and animal training in general. Learned helplessness is also an issue, I think, when it comes to punishment and the horse being more and more insecure and, you know, unable to think. Uh, do you also have some perspectives on that? Yeah, so learned helplessness, helplessness is a problem for any kind of uh, pressure that the horse perceives that doesn't go away and remains painful, you know, because learned helplessness is about an animal habituating to pain. And you know, in other words, becoming used to pain. But the truth is they never do. It's just that they don't show it. So internally, they have really big problems. Um, and again, it leads them into, um, in, into stressful behaviours. But then when they get to the learned helplessness stage, they just, that's when they have trialled stressful behaviours, but they didn't work. You know, no fighting. You, ca you cannot... You cannot fight this um, 
pain because it doesn't go away. And so they basically just habituate to the pain and shrink into themselves and basically shut down. Um, and it's, you know, so that horse, if it has full-blown learned helplessness, can't even be used anymore. But learned helplessness is, um, it's actually a dimensional disorder. It's not a categorical one. In other words, it's not a all or nothing thing. It's gradual and it's incremental. And I think um, many horses have little bits of it because after all, even using a girth on a horse is pretty inconvenient for horses. They don't really want that. It's a, you know, it has to be tight enough to hold a saddle on. So, um, but there are a few invasions like that that we do, but they generally have less significance uh, compared to punishment and severe pain that the horse has to put up with all the time. And for example, there are many examples of horses, especially I know of quite a few in the past where they would tolerate being spurred to the point of having um, wounds on their sides. Um, many horses tolerate the whip. You see it in racing, no matter how much someone uses the whip, um, the horse won't accelerate. And that's the danger of using these tools is that you know there's a danger in the animal habituating to this and going down the path of learned helplessness. That's one of the things that really bothers me with the whip and the horse races. Because for sure, also when they really start to use it, then the horse has been running for so long that he doesn't really have any more to offer often. So it's it's a very strange place to to use it, you know, towards the finish line. Exactly. And you're you're punishing the horse when he cannot respond. And that is just the recipe for problems. And I my argument is. You know, after racing, and most horses, you know, don't race uh, past eight years of age in Australia. It's it's quite rare. Um, sometimes in jumps racing, they may go longer, but generally um, they finish. And that's a very young horse, really, uh, for his life. And if he's had a lot of issues, or sorry, a lot of, uh, you, if the riders and jockeys have used the whip in that kind of way, many horses don't recover and therefore they're not useful. They're not safe for people. You know, you, you get these horses from the racetrack and quite often they're quite traumatized and not always, some of them are fantastic. Um, and you're very fortunate if you do get one like that. And I think um, a, a lot of them are very good, but, but often there are some issues of the whip. Um, and in some cases there are big issues, um, especially with very sensitive horses. And, you know, people would just say, oh, well, that one can't be retrained because it's mad. But it's not mad. It probably wasn't mad before it started. I'm sure it wasn't. There are uh, different philosophies when it comes to horse training. And one of the ones that I find interesting is where you, one school would say, make the wrong thing difficult. And one school would say, make the right thing easy. So making the wrong thing difficult could be that you you make a lot of fuss with your horse and really, you know, force them to move and, and get all that flight instinct up. And then once they get into the horse trailer, they are left alone. So so the wrong thing, staying out of the trailer, is difficult and, and getting on would be the good choice for the horse. Do you have any uh, perspective on, on the difference between the right thing easy and the wrong thing difficult? Yes, I do. Um, because... 
to make the wrong thing difficult, there's just no science in that at all. It's just really not true. Um, we know so much about learning and that is just expecting too much. And if things do get better with that technique, it's not because of that. It must be something else like you just, for example, you never go away from the horse trailer. And so people will make the wrong thing difficult by um, making the horse do circles or running it backwards. But the real problem for the horse doesn't go onto the trailer, apart from the fact that he might've had a traumatic experience, is just that when you lead him forward, he doesn't lead into the trailer. So it's essentially a leading issue. It's essentially retraining the horse to lead forward from the lead rein, because many horses don't lead well. Most actually don't, because horses are so good at noticing things in learning. And I didn't get onto this in learning, but classical conditioning is the other form of learning where they learn cues. Um, that attach to operant conditioning. And horses are brilliant at that. So they very quickly learn whatever comes first because it's always about what, what is a, a clue to the behavior that follows, you know, a hint. And so horses very quickly learn to follow people's legs. So they, if you walk, they walk. And when you stop, they stop. And they become very good at that, but that's not leading. And so the horse that learns that way, and most of them do, when you then, if you stand still, for example, and push your hand forward and he feels the pressure of the lead rein on the head collar, just really light pressure. He should immediately walk forward if he's well-trained, but usually he's got no idea what to do because no one's ever done that. They always walk. So you can imagine how the horse feels when you then load him into the trailer and now you walk out. And the horse is always learned that whenever you walk, he has to walk. So that creates a lot of problems on the trailer. Um, when the horse is tied up and you walk away, he becomes really fidgety. And it's not because he's silly or naughty. It's just because your legs are saying now walk and he can't. And so teaching the horse to lead and stop and stay still, we call that park, is really essential. It just makes every horse so much calmer and elephants, we do it with the elephants too, and it makes a huge difference. And you would think that in cultures where they've had these animals for many, you know, hundreds of generations, they would have learned that, but they don't um, always. It's quite common that elephants have, and I've worked in five different countries and we still do, that they don't stand still. And many horses don't stand still. And they're just called, in English, they say they're fidgety. So it's, um, it's quite a, Quite a problem that idea of, you know, if make the wrong thing difficult, and it 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 means that see it implies that the horse has it in his head that all right I know what the right answer is now I'll do it. It's it it's a bit ridiculous. So I'm a huge believer in just make the right thing easy, and that means set it up like make the right thing the the right response you're after so easy for the horse that it's the one he tries first because the more you enable him to be successful by trying a behavior the more he has uh, what we call positive affective states and he starts to um, try the first thing if you set it up well so for example um, I'm thinking if you make the make it easy for the horse to learn to lead forward by having it set up in a place where the only option for him to go is forward. Um, there, there are whole, there's so many elements of the setup 
that you can do um, as a trainer by just thinking, how could I set this up so that he's very likely to give the correct answer? But then you kind of hear the the trainer saying, well, you know, if it's if you make it too easy for him, then he won't really do it when you need him to do it in a specific situation because then things will be different. So you need really to be in charge, be in control and tell him what to do. And that's going to be it. That kind of mentality seems to be rather normal. Yeah, and there was the same. That was the same impression people had with that children that you know you had you had to be really tough. So, but those children never stood up for justice. So, in other words, when it was challenging, they were too afraid to you know to say anything because of their back punitive background. I, I think that it's um it's really the opposite. That you know you you, you make it easy. And all training is, it's just brainwashing, basically. And I say that because we're all brainwashed. You know, we all live our life and have our routines. Um, so we're, we're locked into this world through our, you know, our learning and our repetitions and our culture into whatever we do and however we behave. And that's what we do in training. So we basically just repeat and repeat and repeat. And the more we repeat things and make it easy for the horse to learn it uh, each time, and we don't vary it until we're really quite certain that the behavior is fairly solid, that's all you have to do is just repeat and make it a habit. You don't have to make it tough. So if you do that, that horse then becomes really bold and brave and just another example with elephants, because they said the same thing to me in Nepal, where we were working with elephants there for the national parks, and they use them for um, anti-poaching and for wildlife census, you know, for looking at how many tigers there are in the forest and how many deer, etc. Elephants are quite afraid of tigers. Elephants that have had a lot of punishment and um, tough coercive behavior, are nowhere near as brave when they see a tiger as one that's had really gentle, repetitious, good training. And that's one thing that enabled our elephant training organization to become really strong um, was because of this uh, idea that you just had to repeat and repeat and repeat and use a lot of positive reinforcement. And the we were working in uh, Southwest Nepal in a place called Bardia National Park and we had five elephants that were a pilot program to test out these theories and it, in just four years the Nepalese government said this is fantastic you know we want to roll this out across Nepal and then the, then it went to India and then Thailand and then uh, Laos and, and, and Myanmar but uh, obviously Myanmar's out for us for a while, but, you know, it it worked because we made the animals brave and bold through confidence, not through punishment and not through making, making it tough. You know, the idea of making it tough also is a misunderstanding about uh, complexity, because if you want a horse to do something quite complex, I'm thinking jumping cross country, for example, and that's really my background, the horse just has to gradually be exposed to more and more complexity, but only changing small variables. So when you're teaching him to jump, 
if you change the height, don't change the shape. Or the, you know, the jumpers made of poles, don't change anything, just the height. And, um, and give the horse a lot of experience there when, you, when he feels really comfortable. Then gradually change one more thing and another thing. And then maybe layer um, a mat or a horse blanket over the rail and keep doing that until he's comfortable. And just keep doing everything, keep varying as much as possible. That's how you produce um, a, a, a horse that you know, is a top horse in cross country. And I, I've, I've done that myself. And so I, I can speak from firsthand experience that horses can be, and the old fashioned way of in cross country and military was um, also quite a lot of scary. Now the jumps are very technical, but they were big and scary and dangerous and trappy many years ago. Um, but you can train horses to do that by just gradually changing and being very rewarding and giving them loads of confidence. So maybe some trainers then will uh, say that uh, I don't want him to be too brave and too bold because then he can use it against me, if you know what I mean. That it's much better if, if you know, I'm, I'm top dog and he knows his place and, you know, that's, that's like a fixed thing and I don't want him to have initiative. I just want him to go when I say go. So what do you think about that aspect? Yeah, I can see what you're saying there. And I think I've heard that kind of idea. That's again, a bit ridiculous because the horse doesn't do things for us because he sees us as a top dog. The horse does things because it's a habit to a signal. And so he learns to do it. And as he learns to do it, he becomes more confident in doing and he becomes more confident in our relationship in the bond between the person and the horse. So you develop it like that. It doesn't work. Um, the other way, you know, I think it's a, a very important thing to emphasize that, you know, you make you make the bond uh, with the horse and the horse will do whatever you want. You know, like you can start to make it more challenging. You, know, you don't have to stay in the same place. You can gradually make everything just a little bit more challenging. And then, he, you know, he'll give you what you want. The thing is, if people say that the horse becomes too bold, I guess what they mean is maybe he might run faster and be too strong but see that's not a yeah, or, to, or to or to challenge them i think it has to do with that oh i see he needs to know his place kind of idea or something right but i think that in a way by reacting to your aid um i, I never ever see that in all my years of training and i've spent many years with the australian equine you know we developed the australian equine behavior center where we dealt with so-called difficult horses and I never found that the horse you know by making confident made him too uh, challenging ever uh, you know we had hundreds and hundreds of horses that came through our center for retraining that were really big problems in all areas in racing in uh, dressage in eventing trail riding um, you can't make an animal too brave I think it's um it's you know again like a like a child, certainly there are challenges in, in we know that with rearing children, um, that, you know, little children and teenagers can present their own challenges. But what you get in the end is the most important thing. And the journey, of course, is, I'm not implying that the journey is just easy, but it's just that you, um, you, you won't have, you won't deal with 
uh, aggression or defense or any of the nasty things like that that pop up that are dangerous for you if you train well. Uh, you just you just basically create an, uh, a partner that is confident and willing to learn. On your website, uh, I found a, f- a quote that I really liked. Uh, it says, we aim to liberate horses and riders from trappings from tradition, mythology and hearsay. And for sure we have talked a little bit about, you know, things that has to do with this quote, but I would really love to hear you hear you elaborate when it comes to mythology and tradition and hearsay. Yes, well, see, I think those are other things. This is the world I came into as a horse rider when I started my the beginning of my well, I grew up on an island in King Island, uh, which is I spent my youth there and I um, really learned to ride horses bareback and have a lot of fun. And that led me into a world with I took my horse, which was born and bred on on that island. Um, his ancestors had been there for many, many years. They were a wild herd. And um, he was a very good jumper. And so I went show jumping and and, um, and he was quite successful. But my heart was really in galloping. I loved to gallop. And so I, I then went um, eventing. I started out like that just in the traditional way. And so all of the things that I teach people about what to do now, it's it's also based on all the mistakes I've made. You know, I'm not, I, I don't come to this in any kind of righteous way. I come to this as someone who's made those same mistakes and seen that there's a better way and much more efficient ways of doing things than, than the old ways. So in my sport of eventing, I had a scholarship from the Institute of Sport here in, in this country and, uh, and I lived in Tasmania and I spent all that money on coaching and it really helped me a lot. And I got into an Australian team and it certainly helped my horse enormously, the coaching. But I was also teaching animal behavior at the university at that time. And I was quite taken by the big gap between what I was teaching my students and what I was being told by coaches. So I aim to just fill that gap and make those connections so that we'll basically I could do a better job, but also so that in my teaching, I could teach people and teach coaches to be more understanding of horses, uh, the, you know, the truth about horses, and in particular to destroy a lot of those myths that we've grown up with, because, you know, science is only 70 odd years old in terms of animal psychology. It's really very young, but we've we've had horses with us for over 5,000 years. So it's not an easy and immediate thing to change but that's been my interest and and mission and um so i'm involved in australia we have a very big pony club system in australia for children um, we have over forty-five thousand members so i've been involved in spearheading this new syllabus uh, for the pony club which is now complete and it still has its problems we still have many coaches in australia in that pony club system that are really against change and they hark back to the old traditional ways of doing things and they don't believe in it. But it's so much more successful for children to learn this way and for children to be safe. It's much safer for them and safer and better welfare for the horses. So now there's an increasing groundswell of people who really see that and people who've just 
read that syllabus or read some of the things that um, myself and other people have written on the subject of a scientific approach of training, which is an easy science, it's very simple to understand. People who've read that have then uh, made changes to their horse's world. So I think um, that's, that's the big kind of holy cow to slay is, you know, the, 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 the background of uh, mythology and tradition in a very, very old um, interaction between humans and horses. It goes back so far. And it has an overlay of culture in Western Europe too. You know, from the horse is a, um, an image of something quite extraordinary in our psyche. You know, I think it was Carl Jung that said, you know, the horse is in the human psyche and in a dream is, is the image of ourselves. And, you know, we've been with the horse in war uh, everywhere. It's been our partner for so long. And so it's understandable that there is uh, that, um, you know, that, that sort of anchor of culture. But by the same token, we can keep that and we can maintain the bond and the love we always had for horses, but we can just do it in a better way now. Could I also ask you about reading the body language of the horse? If if a horse uh, runs towards an obstacle and refuses and then goes bananas afterwards, then you sort of feel that his experience is that when he stops in front of the obstacle, somebody will hit him. So so you kind of you kind of see the behavior in the horse. And and with dressage horses horses, there's there is sometimes a huge discussion about whether this horse is happy or not. Because you can have the ears pricked like this and they're really pricked and looking really, really happy. And the tail is going. And so people say, but the horse is happy because the ears are pricked. And this is this is something that I think is interesting to talk to you about. Because it's not my experience that pricked ear means equals happy all the time. It's It can also be a horse looking for an escape or, you know, something else. Yes, it's a very, it's a more aroused horse. Um you know, as you say, looking for an, a, an escape. And I don't think it's necessarily a sign of a happy horse. It's really difficult to judge what is happy. That's the big problem because even in humans, it's hard enough to judge. But um, I think in a, in a human, for example, we have this vast um, spectrum of at one end of the scale, we've got euphoric happiness, del you know, delirious happiness. And at the other end, we've got this awful place this dark place of hatred and, and revenge. And then in the middle, we're somewhat content. And I think for the horse, fortunately, it's a much smaller spectrum of, uh, of you know, they're, they're not revengeful. If they were, we would have a lot more injuries than we do. Um, so it's fortunate for people, I suppose. And so I think the horse lives in a world where, you know, he's, he, he's very content. And certainly some things please the horse, it seems to be that, you know, because they have certain things that they want to go to, certain attractive stimuli um, that they like to do. Um, it must be a very appealing sort of parasympathetic feeling for the horse to be scratching each other and mutual grooming and grazing in a nice pasture. But I think um, we overdo that, that the idea of the happy horse came about um, a decade or so ago, actually a bit more about 2006, I think, and I went to the FEI to talk about the happy horse and what it is. Are we then talking about what you call a happy athlete? Yeah, it was about, it actually began with Rolker. 
And um, I went there to talk about the effects of role care and learned helplessness and those kinds of things. And um, basically the notion of the happy athlete came, came from that conference in Switzerland. <clears throat> and people have really gone crazy with it because in a way, I guess it justifies what people do and makes them feel comfortable. But it is a difficult thing to really measure and know but by the same token, I think it's a very important thing to recognize that the horse's positive affective states, which is all we do know in science, is that it's a good place to be and we want him to be like that and we want to make the horse more, more comfortable um, in, the, in his interactions with us. And so that's where the bond between the horse and the, and the human is so important. And that gets back to attachment in terms of, um, you know, how we raise the horse and train him and all of our interactions and especially based on touch that you know we we need to be able to we need to groom and stroke horses um, and they need to be able to do it to each other so in many cases i you know um, i advise people that if you can remove the bars of your stable so the horse can touch each other because i think that touching is 50% better in terms of attachment than just simply seeing. So yeah, the idea of the, um, of the happy horse is uh, to me all just about making a horse very content, um, not necessarily, you know, we, we don't know enough about it. Just before I ask my last question, which is always the question about what have you learned on your journey that you think everybody with horses should know? I just want to make absolutely sure that there is nothing here that you would have liked to share that we haven't talked about. Well, I think the um, my latest journey um, is into animal welfare, and that's been a really interesting journey, and that happened uh, almost by accident. And um, I went to a conference to talk about social license and you know social license really is all about uh, what rights do people have to do what they do to animals and um, where do these rights stem from and you know in areas in horse human relations you know that's all about how we use the horse and what we have using the whip and all of those sorts of things so it's a very important question because basically the public are in charge of that you know if something gets lots of likes on Facebook or lots of dislikes, then that can drive legislative change. So we always need to be, uh, you know, ahead of the game, but that, that's another story. But in terms of this journey, I went to this conference and um, I spoke to David Mellor, who is the, um, the champion of the five domains model of animal welfare, which is the most uh, widespread uh, and successful model of animal welfare that's used in you know, everything from chickens to and pigs to um, horse racing. And it's even been adopted by the International Federation of Horse Racing, which is quite fantastic. But I went to this conference and I had a chat to him and said, look, it's very good, um, but I think we need to add a lot more in terms of human-animal interactions. And he fortunately agreed, which was, I thought, quite outstanding for someone to do that because he already had this very successful model and he could have been very protective and pushed me aside but 
to his outstanding generosity, he said, let's do it. Let's write another version of it. And so the latest model, the 2020 uh, five domains model of animal welfare um, focuses on human animal interactions. The reason I really wanted to do that was because so many things with horses we get wrong as human beings and so much we blame it onto the horse. And so many things we do with elephants, it, it has the same outcomes and we've got to do better. If we want to keep doing what we do, we've got to be much, much uh, smarter about their welfare. And so uh, this was quite a big, big job. Um, I also included uh, uh, from my area, um, Paul McGreevy and uh, Bitter Jones, who's the head of our RSPCA in Australia, and Christina Wilkins. And um, on the on David's side, he already had two other people that were uh, authors with him on the five domains model. So it was kind of a large group of us that uh, this document went backwards and forwards for almost a year, and then we published it last year. And so that has been a, a journey, and I started to think, that's really so interesting for me that this whole journey began with me as a competitive rider, wanting to do it better and get better performances. And then in order to do it, discovering that there was really no, not much known science around it. So I embarked upon my PhD and then, and many other people came on board. So we now have an international society for equitation science and many people were having the same kinds of thoughts too at, uh, in that period of time, the end of the 90s. And then uh, we necessarily delved in, my area was in cognition, you know, animal mentality. That necessarily led to the area of learning. We explored all of that. Then people would say, well, what about the bond between humans and horses? Um, you know, you're not talking about that. And I think this whole idea of learning theory is just too cold and not warm enough. And I thought, well, yeah, you're probably right. So myself and Paul McGreevy started to look at what, what else is there? And with, there were three areas that we call the three A's, which is effective states, arousal, you know, how aroused the horse is, or, you know, it's even stress, and, and attachment theory. And so we dealt with those. And my journey was in attachment theory. And we presented this at a conference in 2013, and we're actually writing about it now. We're writing a paper on it. And that led to that. And then uh, this journey in attachment theory made me realize the importance of socialization and other elements of the horse's basic um, um, nature that really should be addressed. I mean, it's obvious that the horse needs exercise, but the horse also needs constant foraging. You know, it's not just something that they want, like, you know, as in hay, it's something they need. They need to chew for 13 odd, 13 odd hours a day. Um, and they also need social uh, companions, you know, um, not just people, but they need to be able to touch social companions. It's an important need. And so I did some work with the Manchester police and um, implored them to give it a try to pull the bars down in this giant police force, mounted police force in, in England. And um, they were a bit nervous about it because they didn't think it would go down well with the, with the mounted police board. 
but actually they were very good and they said, we're going to do it and we're going to pull down all the walls. And they pulled them all down. And I said, I want you to be really honest with me and tell me if it's a bad idea because I know, you know, it's really an interesting idea. And at the same time, I was doing the same thing uh, with people with it, suggesting the same thing with the elephants, unchain them, put them in large enclosures. And the answers were always the same in the beginning and the fears were the same. Well, they'll, all, they'll hurt each other. Um, they're not used to being with each other. And that's true in some horses and bull elephants, it might be a very dangerous thing if they've been isolated all their lives, because the more you isolate them, the worse they get, the more crazy they'll become, I suppose you could say. But with most horses, you, and you could do it really gradually anyway, but with most horses and elephants, they're already made to interact successfully. Elke Hartmann in Sweden did a great study in her PhD looking at how you do introduce horses to each other um, and in, in, you know, to put them together in group housing and showed that if they just interact with each other over a fence for around about half an hour, most of your problems were already gone by then. So they'll be safe to put out. So this journey then led to this five domains uh, study um, where now we were, that was really for me the, the last step of my current journey. I don't know where I'll be going next, but um, looking at how we implement that uh, in human animal interactions right across all species that we interact with. So for me, it's much more than just about horses. I, I love horses and I love to ride, but I'm really uh, an animal person. I like to know about animals. My life is about animals. I'm, I'm not, I don't choose horses over any other animal. I'm just as interested in the spider building the web or the eagle flying. And I think that that kind of one world philosophy where we realize the interdependence of all that we do with horses is in some way a kind of um, uh, an image of how we deal with the world. And we should think about that more and look after all animals in the same kind of way and be protective of them. So for me, it's a, it, that is my personal journey. It's a little bit sort of beyond, I guess, the scope of just horse training, but it's a personal journey about a better way for you know, us all to um, live so that we so that it's sustainable and it's a happier friendlier place for everybody Andrew this has been such a wonderful conversation oh thank you very much oh it's it's brilliant thank you very much I'm so grateful for uh, for you accepting to be a guest on this show oh thank you thank you very much I've, I've really enjoyed talking about it you have just heard episode eight from clan of the horses a podcast about horses and horse people and this was part one of the interview with Dr. Andrew McLean. In the second part, we will take a closer look at the dominance and submission theory. The thing is that in equine ethology, the only form of dominance displayed by horses is bilateral dominance. In short, it looks like we got some of the basics wrong. The only thing that remains now is to thank my composer, Frederick Blom, and my brilliant guest, Andrew McLean. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you. <laughs>